0: WLCC Brandon
1: Faith Talk Tampa online at letstalkfaith.com or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey.
0: The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre recorded.
1: See, in stating that Jesus is Lord, Peter is very clearly declaring the deity of Christ. This is a truth that the New Testament declares over and over and over again. For example. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Hebrews 1.3, speaking of Christ. And He is the radiance of His glory, and the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the Word of His power. And I love Hebrews 1.8, because it's God the Father speaking to God the Son, and here's what He says. But of the Son, he says, of the Son who says, God, the Father says this, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. That's a quote from the Psalms. But it is God, the Father, speaking to the Son, and he calls him God.
0: For some people sharing the gospel might feel intimidating. As we are going to find out on today's verse-by-verse broadcast, there are some uncomfortable truths that need to be explained. However, we must remember that we are only the messenger, an ambassador sent by God with the truth. So when we have to tell someone they are a sinner, that is not our opinion. That is what God says. We will get into more of that on today's verse-by-verse broadcast with our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff. You might get to the end of the session today and wish you could listen to it again. Well, you can. Head over to versebyverseradio.org and sign up for the Verse-by-Verse podcast. That way you can go back and review what you heard or even share it with a friend. I'll remind you again at the end of today's broadcast. But now, here is Steve Kreloff
1: this is where we start when we tell individuals the gospel. We start by telling them the horrible position they're in. They are a rebellious sinner who's at war with God, and the only way they can be at peace with him is through Jesus Christ. Now, at this point, Peter hasn't explained how Jesus Christ brings about peace between God and man. He's just mentioned that peace comes Through Jesus Christ. And you see what Peter's doing. Is he's building a case. He's establishing a rationale. As to why these people need to trust Christ. As their savior. And this is where he begins. By saying that God offers peace to them. Through Jesus Christ. And having just briefly mentioned Jesus. In connection with God's peace. Peter immediately moves on. To tell his audience more. About Jesus. Specifically who he is. And what he's done in relation to salvation. And how he, Christ, is the key to being at peace with God. And So as Peter continues speaking, he gives a second truth that must be included in every gospel presentation. He tells them who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. Now I want you to notice how Peter concludes his statement in verse 36. If you look back at verse 36, he concludes it by saying he's Lord of all. What he means by this is that Jesus Christ is God. He's God, both of the Gentiles, as well as God of the Jews. So he's Lord of all, because God shows no partiality or favoritism. Now, as you recall, this truth about God not showing any partiality or favoritism is what Peter had said in his opening remarks to these Gentiles. Back in verse 34, we read, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. And now, he's simply declaring that the God, who is impartial, is none other than Jesus Christ. See, in stating that Jesus is Lord, Peter is very clearly declaring the deity of Christ. This is a truth that the New Testament declares over and over and over again. For example, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God. Hebrews 1.3 speaking of Christ and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power and I love Hebrews 1.8 because it's God the Father speaking to God the Son and here's what he says but of the Son he says of the Son who says God the Father says this your throne O God is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. That's a quote from the Psalms. But it is God, the Father, speaking to the Son, and he calls him God. Colossians 115 at the beginning of 115 says, He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus one day said to one of his disciples, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what the Father is like? See me. See, the deity of Jesus Christ is an essential truth of the gospel because if Jesus Christ is not God then there is no salvation because his atoning death had to be of an infinite and eternal nature in order to pay the infinite and eternal price of our sin and that could only be accomplished by the infinite and eternal God so when you're sharing the gospel you have to tell people that Jesus is God but you can't stop there In addition to telling them his deity, you also have to tell them about his humanity, that he is fully man, yet without sin. That is to say that God became a man. And that's exactly what Peter proceeds to do in the next couple of verses. Notice verses 37, 38. He says to his audience, you yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, after stating that Jesus is Lord, Peter tells these Gentiles that Jesus is also a man. And he does this by telling them something they were all familiar with, namely the earthly ministry of Jesus. Why were they familiar with this? Because they lived in Caesarea. They lived in Israel, Gentiles though they were, they lived in Israel, and they certainly would have heard by word of mouth the many things that Jesus did in Galilee. And Peter specifically refers to Christ's public ministry, which he says started right after he was baptized by John the Baptist. And at that time, Jesus was anointed by the Father with the Holy Spirit, empowering him to do good deeds which included physically healing those who were oppressed by Satan. Now, the question we have to ask at this point is, why is Peter telling these folks about the public ministry of Jesus? Why is it important for them to know that Jesus healed people and that he cast out demons? It's not as if these works of Christ have any direct bearing on their salvation. So why does Peter bring these good works up? Listen closely. It's because these good works Works verify who Jesus is. That Jesus is the very human Messiah predicted by the prophets. The Old Testament prophets, and in particular Isaiah the prophet, predicted what the Messiah would do when he arrived. Why? So that the Jewish people would know who he is, so they could identify him. So, for example, we read, in such passages as Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. When Messiah comes, that will happen. Again, Isaiah 29, 18 and 19. On that day the deaf will hear words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. The afflicted also will increase their gladness in the Lord, and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Again, Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. So all of these good things that Jesus did revealed him to be the Messiah, the man, the Messiah, very human Messiah who was prophesied to come. In fact, I'm going to take just a few minutes to address this to emphasize this ironically ironically it was those very works that Jesus these good works that Jesus had been doing that when brought to the attention of John the Baptist caused John to have some momentary doubts as to whether or not Jesus was the Messiah now let me explain In Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, we read these words. And you may have read this and been perplexed by this, so I think this will be helpful. Now, when John, he means John the Baptist, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, that is, he said to Jesus, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Now, why would this great man, in fact, Jesus said he was the greatest man who ever lived, Why would this great man, John the Baptist, the very man who when he baptized Jesus announced to the people of Israel, here is the Messiah. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why would John have any doubts as to whether this was actually the case? Why in prison now would he have doubts about this? Well, notice what these verses in Matthew say precipitated John's doubt. It was the good works of Christ. We read that when John, when this took place, he was in prison, heard about the works of Christ. That's when John, hearing what Jesus was doing, that's when he sent some of his disciples to Jesus to talk to him and ask him if he is the Messiah or should they expect someone else to come who's the Messiah. See, while John was in prison, his disciples, and apparently they could visit him there, they told him that Jesus had been doing kind and compassionate things like healing the blind, restoring the lame, cleansing lepers, gathering a handful of men and sending them out to preach and to cast out demons and on and on. And it was those very things that were bothering John. And it was causing him to doubt the validity of Jesus as Messiah. And the reason for John's doubts, watch this, was because Jesus wasn't doing the things that John had told the people that Messiah would do. Namely, execute judgment on sin. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, this is what John told people that when Messiah comes, this is what he's going to do. He said, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me, meaning Messiah, is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's judgment. That's judgment. So John was boldly proclaiming that when Messiah arrived, he would execute judgment upon the wicked But that's not what John hears Jesus doing. His disciples have reported to him that Jesus is just going around doing good deeds. And John is perplexed. John is confused. He's thinking something like this. If Jesus really is the Messiah, then why isn't he executing his blazing power of judgment on the world? Now, John was absolutely right when he said that Messiah will execute judgment because this is precisely what the old testament scriptures teach messiah will execute judgment but what john the baptist failed to do was understand that judgment isn't the only work of the messiah the bible teaches that there are two comings of the messiah in his first coming messiah didn't come to judge he came to seek and to save that which was lost he came to die on behalf of sinners It's in his second coming that he will return to execute wrath and judgment upon all who are lost. But John failed to recall all that the prophets had said about the good works of Messiah. He remembered some of it, but not all of it. So notice what Jesus did in response to John's question about his good works and whether or not he's the Messiah. I love this. Verses 4 and 5. Jesus answered and said to them, that's John's disciples, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now, the amazing thing about Christ's response to John's question is that he didn't answer his question. At least not directly. John asked if Jesus was the Christ, or if there was someone else coming who was the Christ. And notice what Jesus did. He just loosely quoted... From a number of different passages in the book of Isaiah, those passages spoke of the works of the Messiah, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And he told John's disciples to go and tell their teacher that this is what he's doing. That's what confused John in the first place. Go back and tell him, this is what I'm doing. This was Christ's answer to John. You want to know if I'm the Messiah Just look at my works, they prove who I am. Remember what the prophets said. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Now the point that I want you to see, and the point that Peter is making in his gospel presentation, is that the supernatural works of Jesus proved that he was the Messiah, and therefore that he was a man, a real man, full humanity as well as full deity. And the reason, folks, that this is so important when you're telling someone the gospel to stress that Christ is both God and man is because without an understanding that He's the God-man, His greatest work makes no sense. And it is His greatest work that Peter speaks of next as he continues to unfold the message of salvation. Notice verse 39. We are witnesses... Of all the things he did, that Christ did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. Peter says that he and the other apostles are eyewitnesses of all the good things that Jesus did, meaning that they saw him. They actually observed him doing these things. And then Peter immediately speaks of the very best thing that Jesus did. He tells them about Christ's death using language that would express his death, communicate his death, as a shameful, divine punishment for sin. Peter says they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. In spite of Christ doing these wonderful works throughout Israel, the majority of the Jewish people and their leaders rejected him, and then they turned him over to the Romans to be crucified. And Peter is very explicit in describing his death as being hanged on a cross because the cross is actually made from a tree. It's wood. And Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, says, He who is hanged on a tree is accursed of God. Peter worded it this way because he wants these Gentiles who did have an understanding of the Old Testament because Cornelius was a God-fearing man. He believed in Judaism, so they knew this. Peter worded it this way because he wants these Gentiles to understand that in his death, Jesus Christ was cursed by God. That doesn't mean that God said bad words to him. That's what we think of when we say to be cursing. But it means that he was judged Judged by God the Father for sin. That's what it means to be cursed by God. It speaks of divine judgment. But not for any sin that he committed because he, Christ, was sinless. You see, while hanging on the tree, Jesus was judged by God the Father in the place of sinners. Meaning that the Father poured out his holy wrath on the innocent, undeserving Christ instead of on guilty, deserving us. Now, one would assume that Peter went into far more detail about this than Luke tells us. We would assume that he explained more fully to his audience at the meaning of Christ's death in more detail because this is what makes the gospel such good news. This is the heart of the gospel. It's that the innocent one has been judged in the place of those who are guilty. Years later, writing in his first epistle, Peter would explain Christ's death this way. 1 Peter 2.24 And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. When Peter says that by his wounds you were healed, he means that it was Christ's sufferings and his death that brought about our spiritual healing. Which is another way of saying that Christ's death secured our peace with God. That's how Peter began his gospel presentation. Now he's finally, finally declaring to his audience why peace with God only comes through Jesus Christ. It's because of Christ, the god mans substitutionary death on the tree. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce explained it this way. He said, why is Christ's death such an important part of the gospel proclamation? The answer is that he died for us in our place. This is how he made peace between ourselves and God the Father. Jesus made peace, as Peter's fellow apostle Paul says in another place, by taking the law that we have broken and that condemned us and nailing it to the cross. Colossians 2.14 Our sin is like a great wall between God and us. We cannot bridge it in order to make peace with God. We're on the far side of this wall fighting God all the time. How can that wall be removed? The cross is God's answer. At the cross, God took our sin, placed it upon Jesus Christ, and punished it there. Jesus did not die for himself. He had not sinned. He did not die merely because he was a man. He died for us because Jesus is God and infinite. His death had inexhaustible value. When we trust him, coming to God on the basis of his death, our sin is removed And what was before a relationship of hostility becomes a bond of peace. Well put. Folks, when you're sharing the gospel with someone, the meaning of Christ's death has to be clearly explained. Because his death is the sole basis for salvation. And it is faith in his death that you will soon tell the person you're speaking to that they need to have in order to be saved. But while the death of Christ is the heart of the gospel and it is the sole basis for our salvation, one has to also speak of what immediately happened after Christ's death, his resurrection. That's exactly what Peter does. Verses 40 and 41. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. Not to all the people but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Now, having spoken of Christ's death at the hands of men, Peter says that God overruled their evil by raising Jesus from the grave on the third day and granting that he appear to some of his followers. Peter says, like me, like himself, others who actually ate with him. Drank with him. What Peter is doing is letting his audience know that the resurrection of Christ is no myth. It's no made up story. It's not a figment of one's imagination. It's not a hallucination. It really happened. It happened. And he should know this because he and a few others were privileged, he says, to spend some time with the resurrected Christ. They even had meals with him. They sat down. They had food. They drank with him. So they're very qualified to be his witnesses. It is no myth. Now the reason Peter wants them to understand that Christ's resurrection really happened is because, note this, the resurrection of Christ is the Father's announcement, it's his declaration that he, the Father, has approved of Christ's substitutionary death for sinners. That his holy wrath has been completely satisfied by the death of Christ. Also that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. All of that is what God the Father declares by raising Christ from the dead. Years later, the Apostle Paul would write to the Corinthians in chapter 15 that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is vain, your faith is vain also. He would also say, if Christ has not been raised, you're still in your sins. You see, Christ's resurrection is the Father's way of telling us that He has accepted, fully accepted, Christ's punishment for our sins so that we can have The assurance that having trusted Christ as our Savior, we will never be punished for our sins.
0: Thank you for joining us today for verse by verse with our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We have been learning some things that are very helpful in sharing the gospel. And we need to make clear the reality of who Jesus is. We also need to explain that everyone is a sinner and needs a savior. And as we just heard, the death of Jesus on our behalf is crucial. However, we must also explain the importance of the resurrection. Now, perhaps you would find it helpful to review today's lesson. That is easily done by surfing over to versebyverseradio.org and signing up for the Verse by Verse podcast. That's found at versebyverseradio.org. If you are blessed by what you hear, please encourage a friend to tune into this radio station for Verse by Verse. And I hope you can join us for our next broadcast where we will continue in our study of The Gospel Comes to the Gentiles.